Hello there. I'm Jay Boninsinga. <laughs> Hi, and this is Jill Norton. And this is This, this should be, be a podcast. <laughs> no, you got to sell it. Go say it again. Sell it. This should be a podcast. Oh, I like that even better. You do it. Well, I was just I was doing it like somebody was like jumping up behind me. This should be a podcast. <laughs> but you 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 emphasized this should be a podcast. I like this that. Should be. Well, I like that better. Cuz that's kind of where it came from. That's true. Right. That's true. Um, yeah, we're living in a, something that should be a podcast. It, I'm sure it is. The coronavirus <laughs> pandemic. So it's been almost uh, a month since we've done this, and it's been a while, but, you know, we've life and whatever. It just, it takes a while. This is a lot of work. Yeah. Even though it's a lot of fun. It is. I mean, we're very lucky because, you know, uh, some people are alone, literally alone. Yeah. You know. Uh, my mother, you know, my father passed away, you know, a month before all this went down. And now my mother is like in a nightmare. I said to her today, it must be very dreamlike to lose your husband of 62 years, have him, his ashes be in your home with you, and you go into this quarantine, unprecedented. Never in the history of the United States have we seen anything like this. And, uh, she, and I said, it, it must be surreal and dreamlike and she goes nightmare like is more like it um yeah just because she can't be with anybody yeah right and you know her partner of 62 years is gone so it just emphasizes her aloneness yeah you know it's got to be really well i mean that's why we're doing the zoom call we're doing a zoom call with yeah. her this weekend with the did you buy boys. those stocks in zoom like i asked you to <laughs> no <laughs> No. <laughs> I wish I owned uh, stock in Amazon, Zoom, Netflix. I'm trying to sell the ideas. <laughs> Speaking of movie ideas, I happen to have a story today. Oh, well, do tell. That should be a podcast. Do tell. <laughs> My story is the story of Utsi, the Iceman. It begins on September 19th, 1991. On the border of Italy and Austria, in a rugged, kind of uh, almost primordial mountainous area that's known as the Utzel Alps, which is where the titular character, Utzi the Iceman, gets his name, the Utzel Alps. So on this day, September 19th, 1991, there was this young, kind of robust German couple Helmut and Erika Simon, and they're on vacation, and they're hiking, and they're singing German beer sinking, singing songs, and they're hiking, and they're vigorous, fun-loving young people. And they get to a point at about 10,000 feet on this beautiful, mountainous, rugged, primitive area where they decide to take a shortcut between two passes to avoid like a mile and a half of more trail. They take this shortcut. So they go off trail and they're kind of making their way across this steep pass when they see this weird sight ahead of them. So at first, from a distance, it looks like somebody you know, like left an old leather jacket up there, like maybe on a, on a log, hanging on a log. But the closer they get to it, the more they realize that it's the remains of a human being. 
It's <sighs> sticking out of the ice. Creepy. You know, Helmet says to Erica, Erica, look! It's a human! And Erica says, Oh, Helmut, should we even get near it? What if it's... I don't... I don't know. It was frozen from the waist down, uh, which is part of the strange, mysterious story that I'm about to unravel for you. It's male. It's, it's maybe middle-aged. It's hard to tell. The skin is as shrunken and brown as like an old shoe. But it's also perfectly intact. Uh, the eyes are open. It's, it, its teeth and fingernails are all still there. It seemed to be kind of tangled up in leather cords and, and uh, it was in a sort of a area that had like a litter of pieces of metal and, and um, items that were frozen in the ice around it. Which led Helmut and Erika to conclude, Erika, it must be a mountain climber. You know, Helmut, I think you're probably right. He could have frozen to death up here in a storm. Or, or uh, I just can't look at it. It's it's just grim. Can I so interject? They, sure. Only because and I, need, scene. I, need to, <laughs> I need to just prepare people that I'm not going to be doing voices and acting this out. You're really kind of making me look bad. But anyway, just full, All right. full disclosure. Go, you can continue. I okay. just didn't want him to expect me to... All right. Put on the performance. I'll keep the uh, actor's <laughs> studio part to a minimum. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, but they, they, they decide, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a few detailed notes as to the location of this because it was off off the map. It was an uncharted part of this mountain. But they, made, they made detailed notes and then they headed straight back down directly to the police. So the next day, September 20th, 1991, a policeman and the manager of, I guess, the local mountaineering lodge. It was probably like the closest lodge, the closest like commercial establishment. Went up to the site and they find the body and they try and try and try to get it out of the ice. But it is really stuck. And they use a pneumatic drill that they brought along. They use a pickaxe that they brought along. Could not get it out without damaging the body. Right. So good. You can ask. You can jump in at any moment and ask me questions. Well, you're being pretty thorough. Every time okay. I have a question, you end up answering it before okay. I can ask the question. So now, now we're on the second day. Now it's like the 21st of September, and word has gotten out about this body. Now, literally dozens of interested parties, climbers, um, local guides, people in the area, they trek up to that 10,000 foot mark. And they go off trail and they find the body and they're all wondering, is this one of our fallen comrades? You know, like, you know, any, any mountain has missing persons over the years. They're either climbers or, you know, and, and this is a massive mountain range, the, the Austrian Alps. So there's a lot of missing people. There's a lot of people, you know, people that are friends that are looking for their missing friends and may have been missing for years. One thing I'll say that was really an interesting sort of little side note that doesn't impact the story that much, but it's kind of fascinating. One of the people that showed up that sec that third day uh, was a guy named Reinhold Messner. Some of our listeners might even think that name sounds familiar. Well, it should. Reinhold Messner was a legend in mountain climbing. Like, it was, it was a coincidence that he lived or, or worked around here, and he could make it up that third day. Um, he was the first human to reach the summit of Mount Everest solo. 
Wow. That's in mountaineering. That's sort of like you know the Congressional Medal of Honor. That's right. you, you know there's not many people who can claim that. Right. Um, but even he and his colleagues could not figure out how to remove this body. You know, it was like literally frozen from the waist down, and it was not moving. So now, by this point, people are starting to wonder if maybe this was, you know, something other than some, you know, poor dude with a mullet and a fleece coat in the 1980s who like slipped and fell, you know, trying to pretend he was, you know, a, a mountaineer. <laughs> uh, you know, rumors started circulating that like maybe this body was from an older era like maybe hundreds of years earlier, you know? So finally, finally, on September 22nd, three days, the third day of the discovery, a team of archaeologists managed to remove the body. And they also gathered up all these tools and belongings that had frozen next to it. And it was all taken to the office of the medical examiner in a place called Innsbruck, Austria, um, it w that was about 50 miles away from here. Some people may remember the name Innsbruck, Austria, because it was the site of the Winter Olympics. Right. Maybe more than once. I don't know. But when I was a kid, I remember, you know, welcome to the Winter Olympics in Innsbruck, Austria. Now we have the speed skating, you know, competition. It was exciting. <laughs> anyway, so it was there that an archaeologist from the University of Innsbruck, his name was Conrad Spindler. He looked at the body. He probably looked at the body and then had a fucking cow. Because at the end of that day, based on the nature of the tools and that, was found, that were found with the remains and other uh, archaeological aspects of this, he estimated the body was over 5,000 years old. Wow. 5,000. How did they figure that out? How did they... It was a bronze axe <laughs> that was with him. Nothing like that had ever been recovered. It, he looked. He looked it up in in all, in all the body of literature, and it was like this is from the Bronze Age. This body is from the Bronze Age. So they can't tell from the body. They could tell mostly from the the tools that he had with him. Well, they eventually did. You know, dating on the actual physical remains. You know. Also remember, this is 1991, so this is almost 30 years ago. The oh, yeah. technology started to. Right? What, no, you're, I... no, you're right. I'm just having one of those, like, oh, my God, that's so crazy that that's yeah. so long ago. It doesn't <laughs> seem that long ago, but it was 30 years yeah, ago. I know. It's... If somebody was born that year, they'd be 30. Right. right? You know, it, it's a long time ago, really, in terms of technology. You know, there was no Internet then. You know, they didn't have... I don't even know if they had, like, PET scans and, and you know, MRI scans. But anyway, as the, well, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Because at this point, now, the entire global community. community sat up and took notice. Like, whoa, a collective WTF <laughs> among scientists. You know, they were all kind of mesmerized by this little tiny man. He was only five foot three. Okay? The oldest intact mummy in existence and the only human remains on record from the Bronze Age. Wow. He lived around the year 3300 BC, and he became known as Utzi the Iceman, as I said, named for the Altsal Alps, where he was found. 
But one of the most fascinating things about him is all the information that his remains like provided us. It, it's it was mind-boggling all that we learned about what it was like five thousand years ago, and you know uh, who this person was and how he lived. All through these like amazing technology and you know scientific advancements that happen over the next few years of studying this this body because the body was so deep frozen in in this like i don't know glacial ice i don't even know if that is a thing but yeah it was in a pocket uh it's almost like to me it's like he was a time traveler because you could x-ray his body all the organs everything was there intact you could analyze his bones his tissues um he could really learn what life was like back then. Could you tell what he ate? Yeah. You could tell what he had for breakfast the day he died. And? Uh, it was deer meat. Oh. It was ibex meat and grain, probably from bread. This is all fascinating to scientists and archaeologists because right around that time, you know, 3300 B.C., farming came into existence. So it was a little, it was kind of, he was a foodie. He had these new things like grain and bread and stuff that were really kind of it all it all adds up to these mysterious contradictions and interesting from like the pollen in his body they could tell where he grew up what part of the of the country he grew up in he grew up just north of a town in Italy called Balzano but they could tell that from the the shape of his tooth enamel and, and the pollen and everything. It's amazing. They could tell from the bone deterioration in his body that he, he lived a life where he took long, long walks over rugged, mountainous terrain. So some, some scientists early on thought that he was probably a shepherd. They also, here's just a couple of things they also discovered that are kind of fascinating. He was lactose intolerant. <laughs> okay, which is kind of funny, but actually the more you learn about archaeology, you learn that dairy products were brand new in 3300 BC. Right. Like they there was no such thing as dairy products a thousand years earlier. How do the, they The body was not equipped. How to, do they determine that? Like from his bones or from his stomach, oh. from his DNA. Oh, wow. Yeah. He had an intestinal parasite. He was sick quite often. Did you know any of this stuff? Because I know I've talked to you about this guy before, but well, I, I read your book, but oh, but, but it's been a cool. long time, and I didn't know all these little details because that's not in the book. I don't want listeners to think I only do stories that I've already turned into something else because that's that's sort of a side story. I didn't really write a book about Utsi, but you know he inspired he inspired a book which we can talk about. Right, but I don't know, like, but. but I don't know all these details, so it's right. His clothes were like pretty elaborate. They were made of like leather and and animal skins and even like woven grass and woven pieces of leather and stuff he had a cap he had this sort of helmet like thing with a chin strap i mean it, the guy was he was very you know styling yeah he was a cool guy <laughs> he had a lot of stuff going on he had it all going on and some of the things that like we thought about the bronze age were sort of like turned completely upside down by what is you know dna said one also interesting thing about the Bronze Era that that archaeologists always believed, and this this uh, remain you know Utsi kind of confirmed it. It was the first time humans specialized. 
It was the first time humans developed vocations, and it really was the earliest evidence of people having jobs. If Utsi was a shepherd, by the way, some of his belongings made sense, but some seemed a little badass and violent, and maybe even defensive for like a simple sheep herder. Okay, for instance, he had a badass copper axe with a yew-wood handle, long, you know. It's copper, the bronze axe that you talked about? Yeah. Okay. He had a totally intimidating hunting knife. He had a quiver of at least 14 arrows tipped with flint. Like, these were really advanced weaponry at that time. He had a yew-wood longbow, which was like you know, shooting arrows over long distance and stuff. Sure, he could have hunted with it. He had a medicine bag, and inside it were healing herbs, like herbal medicine and stuff. Um, he had a fire lighting kit. I mean, this guy was... Prepared. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, would a shepherd need all this, like, ordinance? Well, I, back then, I mean, I maybe. he's in unknown territory. Yeah. There's probably crazy huge animals there's you know right. he's got to be prepared he's sort of the ultimate boy scout and plus he probably was a loner <laughs> yeah he probably was a loner but i, I mean i think he, he might have been like well th this is where my imagination kicked in and i started developing fictional accounts of who he was but i think he might have been like the bronze age version of like a fucking navy seal like he, he seemed like he was prepared right for the worse which all, brings us to the final mystery about Utsi, which to me is the most fascinating part. And it really kind of, you know, it kind of, it kind of fits right in with our zeitgeist today and, and the, you know, the My Favorite Murder gals. And um, it's really fascinating. Initially, archaeologists were theorizing that Utsi maybe have gotten, like, gotten caught in a storm and it died on the mountainside in a horrible, you know, blizzard or something like that, you know. And that's how he would, was eventually buried and carried away in a capsule of glacial ice, you know. And then there were theories that he was he was a victim of like a ritual sacrifice. And maybe the, maybe he was moved from some other place where he was sacrificed to this high mountain area that might have been a shrine or like um, but scientists pretty much have, have disproven that with just scientific evidence of his remains. Like, you know, they, they didn't see any um, uh, indication that he was killed somewhere else and moved. Right. And, and mo most, you know, even early pathologists could, find, could see that. Plus all the things that he had with him. I mean, whoever would have murdered him in that scenario certainly wouldn't have been like well let's bring all of his stuff too and the right. axe and, and you know they probably would have taken it or they would have left it but i don't think they would have you know right really really true um now you can sneak in the mysterious music okay. the droning low chord of all horror films when people <laughs> go what's happening <laughs> <laughs> because then in 2001 this is 10 years after he was discovered. Scientists did a CT scan on his body. And what did they find? They found an arrowhead embedded in the back of his left shoulder. Now it gets really fascinating and freaky. They also found that the shaft of the arrow was pulled out before he died. They also found there were other wounds that were associated with it, defensive wounds. 
cuts to his hands and wrists, one gash near the thumb that went down to the bone, really reflective of what we would call today defensive wounds. Somebody is being attacked. Okay, evidence of that. And then the piece de resistance, the final mystery of Utsi, the Iceman, that would be puzzled over for the next two decades. DNA analysis revealed traces of blood from four other people on his body and clothing. Wow, I did not know that. Wow. One, uh, let's see. Uh, let me read uh, what one. Okay. Four other people on Utsi's gear. One from his knife. One detected on his knife. Two from a single arrowhead. And a fourth from his coat. So he, he, he was in a war. Or, uh, you know, a, a struggle. Right. And the reason that there were two from a single arrowhead is... Do you have any thoughts? I think, well, okay, I, I, I won't lead the witness. I think it's because in those days they would, they would use the arrow on a deer or, you know, God forbid, on another person, and then they'd go get the arrow. Oh, right. You know. Like, like Norman Reedus. Like Norman Reedus, like fucking Daryl Dixon. <laughs> he doesn't leave that in a zombie. Right. You know. And then, uh, and then as Alan Baker, our mutual friend and badass professional soldier once told me when you do pull your knife or arrow or you know edged weapon out of someone that you've killed you don't wipe the blood on your own clothing you wipe it on their clothing (laughs) (laughs) anyway um tips from the front line (laughs) you know my the final thing that that's that's kind of ominous about this there's even been rumblings in the media uh, in recent years about a possible curse because uh, several untimely deaths of several people that were involved in either, you know, like the discovery of uh, our friend Helmut. Helmut Simon died in a kind of a strange, I can't give you the exact circumstances of his death, but he, he was young and, and it was odd that he passed away. Um, the guy who found found the mummy, uh, he died. Um, Conrad Spindler, you may remember I mentioned, he was the first archaeologist to date to say this is a 5,000-year-old right. mummy. Um, he died mysteriously. Five other people associated with it have wow. died. Now, you know, most scientists say, hey, you know what, it's been 30 years. People pass away. You could, yeah, any, any endeavor that's lasted 30 years, you're going to have people that pass away. But you can see Utsi today, if you're interested, at the South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology in this beautiful little town of Balzano, Italy. If you dare. <laughs> <laughs> There's some towns in Italy. There's I've never been there, but, you know, of course, I know the entire world because of Google Earth. <laughs> you know, there are some towns in Italy that look like they're, they are literally medieval towns. They're on hilltops. I've been to the, one of those. San Gimignano. Right. Yeah. So you can speak of this, you know, through personal experience. Yeah, and, and Balzano is like that, too. It's stunningly beautiful. And it's in way, way, way in the northern part of Italy, almost to the Austrian border. It's only like 40 miles from the, from the border. So that's, in a nutshell, that's the, that's the story of, let's see. That's fascinating. 
No, I did. I, I did write a series of four books about an African American FBI profiler called uh, Ulysses Grove, and the four books became known as the Ulysses Grove Quartet. In fact, they were they're just they're now being re-released by Burns and Lee Publishing, which I'm really excited about on digital and uh, print on demand. And so you can read read about this if you're interested. Well, how really, I how I fictionalized it. Well, they're really good. All well, the thank books. you. Thank you. Yeah, I've had I've had I've had a lot of experiences with with great uh, actors who want to play the Ulysses Grove role, and and that's been really exciting, kind of to meet some of my heroes who want to play Ulysses Grove. Well, cool. All right. Well, so I, you know, I knew you were going to do Utsi, and so I wanted to find something that connected with it. So I found an article that actually is four stories they're all connected uh, they're all connected um and it's from an article called frozen graveyard the sad tales of antarctica's deaths wow so That's by fascinating by martha enrique and from bbc future so i just thought this was really fascinating and it was all things that happened on the ice and in the ice and you know mysteries and uh crazy accidents so i will go a little bit into antarctica that um, the inland temperature could go as low as 130 negative 130 130 below fahrenheit Mm -hmm. holy and the winds could reach up to 200 miles per hour many scientists and explorers who died there were uh, some were found decades or more than a century later Wow. And some will never be recovered. Some are buried so deep into the ice sheets and crevices or headed out to the sea with the melting glaciers, which is just so creepy. So um, the first story is the oldest story. So this will go back to Utsi. What year was Utsi again? 3300 BC. Okay. Well, this is after that. About that. (laughs) Somewhere around there. All right. Well, this is the mystery of the Chilean bones, and this is from the 1800s. So in Livingston Island, which is in the South Shetlands... I don't know what Shetlands are. I was going to look them up before this. Those are islands. Okay. In the South Shetlands of the Antarctic Peninsula, a human skull and femur were discovered on the beach in the 1980s. And the Chilean researchers found they belonged to a woman who died at the age of about 21 years old. She was an indigenous woman from southern Chile, which was 620 miles away. The analysis- Wow, that doesn't seem that far. <laughs> well then it's pretty far yeah but i mean well let me finish i'm sorry (laughs) analysis of the bones suggested she died between 1819 and 1825 and the earlier of that would have been uh would have put her among the very first people to have uh, been in antarctica at all living or dead so the question was how did she get there So the traditional canoes of the indigenous Chileans at that time were made of bark, and Mm -hmm. uh, they could not have supported her on that trip through the seas and through, you know, they would have fallen apart. There's no way it would have lasted. So there were a few interpretations of what could have possibly happened. So one interpretation was that she was um, an indigenous guide to the sealer. So there were sealers, men who were hunting seals coming from the northern hemisphere. So they were sailing down and they would go to Chile and they would get people to help them, like, you know, help them kind of navigate Mm -hmm. and whatever. One interpretation was that she was an indigenous guide from the sealers traveling from the northern hemisphere to the Antarctic islands that was just 
that had just been discovered by William Smith in 1819. But women taking part in expeditions like this, uh, this far south, was virtually unheard of. Yeah. An archaeologist, Melissa Salerno, uh, she was an Argenti- from the Argentinian Scientific and Technical Research Council. Uh, she was explained that sealers had a very close relationship with the indigenous people of southern Chile. And they would, like I was just saying, they would trade seal skins with each other as well as expertise and knowledge. But that sometimes it could also have gotten violent. And these could have been sealers that have taken this woman. Right. And then left her there. Right. So there's not a, there's not a lot of... I mean, like kidnapped her. Right. Right. Or just took her to whatever, you know, rape her. Did you, sh- did you mention the shape that her remains were in? They were, were they just bones? It was They're... a skull and a femur. That's all that was there. Oh, okay. You can't really derive much from that, can you? Right. And there was not a lot of surviving logs or journals from those early ships, which makes it even more difficult to trace this woman's history. Right. Her story is unique during this time of early human presence in Antarctica at all. A woman who, by all accounts, should not have been there... But somehow she was, and her bones mark the start of human activity in Antarctica. Wow. Wow, what a great story. Yeah, so I thought that was pretty cool. That Um, should be a podcast. (laughs) Okay, so the next one is from March 29th, 1912. And this is a Scots South Pole expedition crew. So Robert Falcon Scott's team of British explorers reached the South Pole on January 17, 1912. And just three weeks uh, after a Norwegian team led by Roald Amundsen had departed from the same spot. The British group's morale was crushed when they figured out that they had not gotten there first. But things then got worse. So Scott was under huge pressure on this expedition. So his his, you know, everybody back home, his colleagues, his friends and family had huge expectations of um, as him is also dealing with, you know, the harsh climate, lack of mm-hmm. resources. But journals were found of Scott's and he wrote about having doubts and anxieties about whether he was up for the task, but there was a need to prove himself. I thought this was interesting. Um, the son of Charles Darwin, Leonard Darwin was the president of the Royal Geographical Society and had given a speech leading up to this expedition where he said, they mean to do or die. That is the spirit in which they are going to the Antarctic. Captain Scott is going to prove once again that the manhood of the nation is not dead. The self-respect of the whole nation is increased by such adventures as this. When I was reading that, I was thinking about, um, you know, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the, the Sarabin and like, he, you know, he's like in Sarabin, just do this and get his head cut <laughs> off. And he's like, uh, no, not so much. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was funny. Um, so despite his fears, uh, the mindset of the do or die drove them and the team to take the risk that per- should not have been taken. So they made it there. They were not the first, as we said, but then heading home is when things took a dark turn. So Edgar Evans died first in February. Then Lawrence Oates, who had considered himself a burden, thinking the team could not return home with him, hold, was holding them back. Uh, I'm just he. I, there was a journal entry that he had said, "I'm just going outside and maybe sometime on March 17th." Wow. Then he never came back. That was the last journal entry. I guess it was Scott's journal, and so he said that that's what happened. And so they're all like running out of, you know, supplies and resources. So he didn't. But he didn't. The guy who wrote that, the uh, Edgar Evans, 
did not realize how close everybody was to death at that point. Mm -hmm. The bodies of Oates and Evans were never found, but Scott, Edward Wilson, and Henry Bowers were discovered by a search party several months after their deaths. They had died on March 29, 1912, according to the date in Scott's diary entry. The search party covered them with snow and left them where they lay. In the pages of Scott's journals, he had written, I do not think human beings ever came through such a month as we have come through. The team knew that they were within 11 miles of the last food depot with the supplies that could have saved them, but they were confined to a tent for days, growing a weaker trapped by a blizzard. Uh, Max Jones, who is a historian of heroism and polar exploration at the University of Man, I can't read what I wrote, <laughs> um, uh, said they were prepared to risk their lives and saw that as a legitimate. You can view that as a part of the mindset of imperial masculinity tied up with every with enduring hardship and hostile or toxic masculinity. I know, I totally thought of that. Uh, <laughs> A mindset of imperial masculinity tied up with enduring hardship and hostile environments. I'm not saying they had a death wish, but they were willing to die. Wow. So, yeah, I thought... Great was... ending to that story. That was really interesting. This is from October 14, 1965. And there are four men, Jeremy Bailey, David Wilde, and John Wilson, and John Ross. These men were uh, on an expedition, and they were on a muskeg near the Heimfront Mountains, just east of their base at Halley Research Station in East Antarctica. That's where they started. Um, oh, here, muskeg was a heavy-duty vehicle designed to have people and supplies over long distances on the ice. A team of dogs ran behind. So three of the men were in the cab. The fourth, John Ross, sat behind the sledge at the back close to the Huskies. Jeremy Bailey, who is Jerry for the rest of this story, uh, was a scientist who was measuring the depth of the ice beneath the tractor. He and David Wilde, who is also named Dai, D-A-I, uh, throughout this story, was a surveyor, and John Wilson was a doctor who were scanning the ice ahead. So snow. What year was this? 1965. Mm -hmm. So snow obscured their view through the small windscreen. They had been traveling all day, taking turns to warm up in the cab and sit out back at the sledge. John Ross was staring out at the vast ice, snow, and mountains. At about 8.30, the dogs alongside the sledge stopped running. The sledge ground to a halt. Ross, who was muffled from wearing a balaclava, which I looked up in as a face mask, face mask. <laughs> ironically, um, and two anoraks, he, had not, he hadn't heard anything, and he wasn't able to see anything. Uh, he turned to see that the muskeg was gone. Ahead, the first sledge was leaning down to the ice. Ross ran up to it to find that it had wedged in the top of a large crevice, running directly across their course. The muskeg itself had fallen about 100 feet into the crevasse. Down below, its tracks were wedged vertically, and there's a photo of this, uh, against one ice wall and the cab had been flattened hard against the other. So Ross sh shouted down, Die, and uh, Jerry Bailey says, uh, Die's dead, it's me. And Ross said, is that John or Jerry? He says, Jerry, how is John? He's a goner, mate. Ross says, what about yourself? Bailey, I'm all smashed up. Ross, can you, can you move about at all or tie a rope around yourself? Bailey, I'm all smashed up. 
Ross then tried climbing down into the crevasse, but the descent was difficult. Bailey told him not to risk it, but Ross tried anyway. After several attempts, Bailey stopped responding to Ross's calls. Ross heard a scream from the crevasse, and after that, Bailey never responded again. So crevasses, deep cliffs in the ice, stretching down hundreds of feet, are serious threats while traveling across the Antarctic. On October 14, 1965, there had been strong winds kicking up drifts and spreading snow uh, far over the landscape, according to reports on the accident from the British Antarctic Survey archives. This covered the tops of the chasms and, crucially, the thin blue line in the ice ahead that warns people like that there's something coming up, but they could, he was unable to see it. So it would have warned him to stop. So the three men were lost to the deep crevasse and no bodies were ever found. So, wow. so the three guys, so it was just one guy left. And it doesn't really go into what happened to him afterwards, but it was all from his story. I don't know. But there are photos of it, which was wild. So I can't imagine just falling down. Just, uh, it's just yeah. horrifying. Yeah. So it's from August 1982. Ambrose Morgan, Kevin Ockleton, and John Call. So these three men set out over the ice on an island called Peterman Island, and they made it there safely, and then they camped out in a hut uh, near the shore. And they were actually within distance from the base, but they were on this little island. So, so people at the base were there and they were going back and forth with them. But then after they got there, a, a large storm blew in that entirely destroyed all the sea ice between them. So the group was stranded, but they weren't overly concerned because they had enough food to, in the hut to last three people more than a month. But the storms kept up, which prevented the sea ice from reforming. There were no books or paper, and contact with the outside world was limited to a scheduled radio transmission with the base. So they kept the transmissions brief because they didn't want to run out of batteries, um, and they were getting weaker. The team was getting restless, um, which I thought we could relate to, just <laughs> getting restless. Yeah, and no being, kidding. Um, then penguins started surrounding the hut, which I guess smelled awful um and they started getting sick their food that they had there they had found had turned so it was a lot of food they were eating was making them sick uh they were running out of supplies so on august 13th they were seen through a telescope waving back at the main base then the sea ice started forming back again and there was suddenly hope to get back in a couple days two days later the group hadn't checked in on the radio whether they were scheduled when they were scheduled to then another large storm blew in. The men at the base climbed to a high point where they could see the island. All of the sea ice was gone from the storm. The three men were never seen again. Bodies never found. Wow. So they don't even know what happened. They, right. they theorized that maybe they attempted to go out onto the ice, but then it wasn't thick enough or, um, I, you know, who knows. Right. But anyway, so scary. So those are my crazy stories about Antarctica. And getting lost in the ice like that scene well done well done <laughs> yeah it, it's 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 super apropos you know to talk about isolation and you know people rationing provisions isolation. and isolation isolation yeah. yeah thank you thank you i didn't even realize how brilliant and witty i am <laughs> i thought of it <laughs> right exactly i think that that is a, a reason why that's a clue to why we as 
humans love to hear these dark, tragic, horrendous stories of human endurance and death and destruction. And I remember when I was working with Robert Kirkman, who for listeners who don't remember who that is, he's, he created The Walking Dead. You know, he used to say, um, the, you know, the reason for The Walking Dead's popularity was that people love to tune in to a show that reflects times and people's experiences that are thousands and thousands of times worse than their own. And it makes them feel... I mean, you know, a lot of people thought he was joking, but I don't think he was joking. I think there's something to that. Like, it's... No, it's true. It's, it makes... It, it, it makes for great reading and some for some... I don't know. Maybe... I don't know why that is exactly, but I'm a purveyor of it. I write horror and I write, you know, suspense and mysteries and stuff. Well, one so. thing that was interesting, I was uh, messaging with my friends today uh, about this whole thing and we were just talking about, you know, whatever each experience we had had that day. And one of them put, you know, this is so crazy, this time we live in, it's historic you know, it's so, you know, it's just so strange to think about. And I thought, I suddenly pictured, you know, some some young kid generations from now, you know, talking to, you know, their grandpa saying, what was it like, you know, and just thinking like, oh my God, this pandemic and this, what you know, and all these people died. And all you could say is, you know, well, we stayed home and we watched movies and we wore some face masks and we talked on computers a lot, you know? <laughs> so I suddenly thought like our suffering is really not living up to the pandemic itself. You know, we're, I mean, obviously this sucks, but it's, a, you know, but we're so many people have it so much worse. Right. Yeah. And not only because of the virus, but just because of life in general. So right. it makes you grateful for. But I think a lot of people sort of are, you know, putting on a brave face. But deep down, many of us are terrified. And that this is the thing that I understand just being a person who works in the field that I work in, you know, scary stories. The scariest thing is the unknown, the dark the deepest part of the ocean, the deep space out there, what's ahead of us, Right. where's this going? That's the, to me, that's, you know, there's a, somewhere, I remember, you know, my mom, when I was a kid, my mom used to read Red Book and Ladies Home Journal and, you know, and they all had, and I loved them too, you know, because my mom read them, I read them too. And, you know, they had like the top 10 fears of all women Usually it was women just because they were women's magazines, but the top 10 fears of all people, you know, the top 10 stressful events of life. And, you know, of course, way at the top, you know, it was the loss of a loved one. Maybe at the top, it was the loss of a spouse or the loss of a close family member. That's the worst. That's the most horrifying and, and difficult thing for any human being to endure. But somewhere in there was f just fear itself. Fear itself is the hardest thing for a human to endure. Like FDR said, you know, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But he, I don't think he realized how true that is on a psychological level. Fear is the scariest thing. 
Well, maybe he didn't think that though, and that's why he said it. Yeah. Well, I think I think his point was we shouldn't be afraid. Because the only thing to be afraid of is fear. So you shouldn't be afraid. I personally think fear is your friend. Fear fear helps you, you know, in the end. Fear makes you notice things. It makes you observe. It makes you pay attention. Right. You know? I don't know. I mean, I might be wrong about that. Do you agree with that? You're not just saying when you say right. Do you really agree with that? You could, you, no, I you know. agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, fear is something that you have to overcome. And sometimes you overcome it by f- facing it head on and, you know, dealing with it. Um, or you can try to avoid it your whole life, whatever it is. And, you know, those you, there's different paths to take. But um, I feel like if you face it head on, you are going to be able to get past it. And, and, you know, it may always kind of be there in the background, but... You know, once you've conquered it, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. Plus, you know, you know, if you feel fear, you are truly alive. Because we, we were designed to be fearful to save ourselves from the woolly mammoth and the predators out in the forest. And the, the, it's a genetic legacy. It's, it's, you know, we were, it's inborn being afraid because it saves your life. Right. But the weird thing is how people gravitate toward it nowadays is it because we're so comforted and and in a womb-like state nowadays of just conveniences and a grocery store a block away has everything you need and social media are you talking in general or are you talking about during this pandemic because just in general that can apply as well I think both, but I was just, I was speaking in general, but I guess it's true for the pandemic too. But the pandemic is different because it's easy to say, why would you be afraid? You're in your house and you have all the food you need and you can have Netflix and, you know, you can just sleep through the night. And Not everybody does that. It's, it's not like that because, you know, there's invisible menace right outside your window. It's not, it, it's never going to be... Oh, the pandemic, that was no big deal. It, I, I think people who would say that are lying. You know, <laughs> well, there it's a people huge who are, deal. There are people who are saying it right now. There are people, you're saying there are people who are saying it. Now, right? the people yeah. who think And they're full go. of shit. Right. They're full of shit. <laughs> right. Well, let's, uh, let's, because uh, this could go on, <laughs> the bitch session. Um, but let's think of something good to end All on. right, good idea. We're going to finish with something positive and upbeat. So what is positive from your end of the world? Um, you know, the thing that jump. I mean, to be honest with you, the things that jumps into my mind is that you and I are the positive in my world. We were, we're together and we're like, you know, it's like a David Bowie song. You know, we're floating in space, but we're together. You know, we're, we're, we're taking care of each other. We're looking after each other. We're loving each other. We're we're cooking for each other. We're well. I'm cooking you're, you're for most, you. You're mostly taking care of me. I'm just sort of like, hey, babe, can I get another water? <laughs> so. And I'm proud to do it. All right. Well, that's very nice. And that, I now I have to rethink mine. Now you got to beat that. <laughs> I got to beat that. <laughs> beat that, bitch. Um. Well, I will say in a very strange way that like the, the last several weeks have been just sort of like catch up, catch up, trying to get used to this. 
um, getting my, you know, trying to work and working as hard as I have been for work, which I didn't expect to be so busy that I'm don't have any free time. I'm not, you know, making, I'm not doing puzzles and what, you know, stuff that I was hoping or thinking that I would be doing all day watching Dateline all afternoon. But, um, is that I feel like this week I kind of am in a groove and I feel like I'm kind of got it down that I can actually relax a little bit and appreciate the fact that I can work with my cat sleeping next to me all day long, which I used to be so jealous when I left for work and Frida would be laying on your desk and I would just be like, oh, I wish I could take her to work with me. Um, So, you know, I think like someone on Instagram, there's like a meme, you know, we're all indoor cats now. (laughs) So anyway, so I was just kind of appreciating that this week and, um, you know, actually having time to work out and do yoga and just do this (laughs) finally. So that's lovely. So grateful. That's sweet. We're grateful. Yeah. All right. Well, love and gratitude. Love and gratitude. And frozen corpses revealing a lot about the past. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, we will uh, see you next time. I don't want to promise it'll be next week, but we'll be back soon. That we will. All right, Jill. Love you. Love you. Bye. (laughs) Bye. The music for This Should Be a Podcast is Close Shave by The Riptones. Check it out. Like everything good, it's on Spotify.